My name is Morgan Smith. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. And I'd like to welcome you all to um, our nice post-lunch uh, panel today on uh, charters, uh, school choice, and accountability. Um, just a few housekeeping things before we get started. You might have noticed that I am not Campbell Brown. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, she was unable to, um, she had a, a, an illness in the family, so she had to pull out. Um, I will be taking her place. Um, and then also this morning, unfortunately, um, Rod Page, Dr. Rod Page said that he would be unable to be with us, but I'm quite happy with the, pan the remaining panelists, and I think we're gonna have a great uh, discussion. Um, if you are tweeting anything, just you probably know this by now, but the hashtag is TTF, um, and just remember to, to, silence, to silence your phones. Um, and um, the setup for the panel is the same as, as the other panels that you've been to. We're gonna have about 40 minutes of conversation and reserve the last 20 minutes at the end for audience questions and answers. So uh, make sure to take a mental note if something comes up or write it down and then you'll just line up at these two microphones here in the middle. Um, but with that, let's go ahead and get started. I'm gonna introduce our panelists. Um, to my immediate uh, left, I have Colleen Dipple. She heads Families Empowered, which is a nonprofit that supports families on charter school waitlists in Houston and San Antonio. Uh, she also serves on the advisory board of the Rice University Education Entrepreneurship Program at the Jones School of Business. And, and before that, she served as director of the KIPP School Leadership Program and worked as a core member at Teach for America. Um, next, I have a Susan Simpson Hull, who is the superintendent of the Grand Prairie Independent School District. Um, it's a, a district that has more than 26,000 students in Dallas County, and she has led it since 2007. Uh, previously, she has been superintendent in five Texas school districts and was selected as the Texas Superintendent of the Year by the Texas Association of School Boards in 2005. And in uh, previous life, she served as a teacher, coach, and principal. And then um, next, I have uh, State Senator Donna Campbell. She is um, an emergency room physician in her day job. Um, she's represented the San Antonio area um, in the State Senate since 2013. Uh, for the past two legislative session sessions, she's served on the Senate Education Committee, uh, where she has been an outspoken advocate for school choice and um, in school, uh, private school scholarship programs. Um, most re recently, including legislation that would have provided a state business tax break for companies that contributed to a scholarship fund to send students to private schools. Um, finally, I have Thomas Ratliff, who is the vice chairman of the State Board of Education, which is the 15-member uh, elected body charged with overseeing the state's public education system. Uh, a Mount Pleasant native, Ratliff has represented his district that crosses 31 counties in Northeast Texas since 2010. Um, prior to his election, he operated a government relations and consulting lobbying firm, the Ratliff Company. Um, so to get us to kind of set the set the stage here, um, I just wanted to say: so when we talk about school choice today in Texas, it's um, it means many many things. Um, it means the choice to choose schools within a public school district, um, potentially across district lines, it's charter schools, it's virtual schools, 
It's online learning. Um, I have some folks up here on this stage that um, also argue that it should include the ability to uh, select secular and religious schools in the private sector. Um, and also, you know, that our existing options in, with charter schools and virtual le learning are not enough readily available for, for every student. Um, but in all of these conversations, you know, while I think every, most agree that the end goal is to make sure children in Texas have an opportunity to attend a top-notch school suited to their learning needs and that the general idea is to use public money wisely, there's a real contention, I think, over just how the state should go about holding all of those programs that fall under a school choice umbrella accountable. So that will kind of be the accountability portion of our panel. But um, before we, we get to that um, and kind of cover the landscape of charter schools and the various um, proposals to expand school choice out there, um, I wanted to look at some of the options that are currently available um, in public schools. And I thought, Dr. Hull, um, you might be a good person to, to address that. Um, Governor Greg Abbott highlighted Grand Prairie's ISD approach to school's choice as a model of innovation in his um, State of the Union address. And um, your district has what's known as an open enrollment policy, so students from outside of the district can come um, how has that worked out in Grand Prairie, and is that something that all school districts in Texas should, should consider? Well, fortunately, I'm not in charge of all school districts in Texas, <laughs> just, just our little piece of Dallas County. Um, thanks so much for, uh, for all of you being here. Would you raise your hand if you are a product of a Texas public school? Me too. And, uh, and I had a great experience there. But there was no choice involved other than the one that my parents made by choosing to live there in my hometown. Uh, in 2007, the state compressed the tax rate. And then some other things happened in our economy, especially in Texas, so that by 2009, I knew that we were going to be cut by about $15 million. And uh, some of our uh, neighbors and colleagues began trimming programs. Uh, thinking about what they could live without. Maybe that was fine arts or uh, programs at the elementary level or some travel. We knew that we had empty seats, and we knew that in 2010, an empty seat was going to be worth $28.13 a day in Grand Prairie. And Southwest Airlines makes a lot of money by flying planes with all the seats full. So we knew if we were going to retain our high-quality programs, especially our fine arts programs, uh, our travel for our students and our staff, things like a nurse on every campus in a very high-poverty, high-minority district, we needed to fill up those empty seats. And um, we became an open enrollment district in order to allow students from other districts who chose to come into our district. But that probably wasn't the biggest piece of seat filler that we got. Um, I drove around one day after counting 20 letters from charter schools announcing that they would be opening either in our school district or very near our school district. I wanted to know what that draw was. And I drove by some schools that had unfinished buildings, uh, didn't have fencing around the playground open manhole covers. But I also drove by buildings that had big signs out that said, 
free tuition, open enrollment, science for all, nurturing environment. And I thought, I can say all those things. We don't do science for some. Mm -hmm. We have nurturing environments. But the big message was, it's about a choice. Choice is amazingly powerful. And if you make a choice, then you're going to follow through to make sure you made the right choice. If you take your four-year-old grandchild or child or niece or nephew to Barnes & Noble, if you can find one that's still open, and you say, sit right here on this little red couch and be real still, I'm going to pick out a book. And you pick that book out and take it home, depending on if you have a, a, a wiggly boy or a, or a not-so-wiggly girl, maybe. At least that was true with my children. You may get through that book once or twice, but if you take that same child of Barnes & Noble and you say, I'm going to sit right here on this red couch, you take all the time you want. Pick any book you want, honey, and we are going to take that book home. You will read that book until your child has it memorized because your child, and your child is here, chose that book. And that's the way it works in the school business. If we put everything out there that we have to offer, and we think of all of the other things that we can offer, and we ask our parents and our children what they need and what they want, and if they will support us in providing that, student achievement goes up. Guess what? Teacher attendance and productivity, if you want to call it that, performance goes up. Our funding levels. <clears throat> increase. We drew back, um, well, just this last year we had um, over 150 of our applicants back came back to us from charter schools. We have students who came back to us from homeschooling and students who came back to us from private schools. Now, as a parent and an educator, I completely support that parent's right to make that choice. If a parent believes and knows that homeschooling, charter schooling, private schooling, parochial schooling is the best choice for their child, that's where that child needs to be. I just happen to think that the 42 campuses in Grand Prairie ISD are the best choice for our parents. And we go to great lengths, not just to tell people that, but to continue to prove to them over and over that we can meet their needs and um, listen to them, and provide the things that they want. So the open enrollment piece, you can tell me to stop, Morgan. I know you, you um, will. Yeah, it's maybe just yeah. you okay. can wrap it up with your left. Okay. <laughs> um, that was very nice. That was very nicely done. Yeah, so, well, we'll get to, well, we still have some time left, uh, so we'll get to a lot. But if there is like a final thought you You do still have to... some time left? Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Senator. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> Yeah, the, really the open enrollment piece was a very courageous move on the part of my school board, and I always just want to, to get that out there that I'm so glad I'm not the only one who can't follow instructions. Um, <laughs> the, um, the open enrollment, the vote to go to open enrollment my board was, was a tremendous vote of confidence in our staff. Uh, there, there is criteria to come into the district from out of the district. Uh, but my board has been incredibly courageous to put that into policy and to put that into practice. Um, well, since you mentioned um, parochial and private schools, I, I wanted to go to, to Senator Campbell next because 
Um, Senator, you have supported kind of giving additional support to parents who want to send their children to, to private or parochial schools. Um, talk a little bit about you know, what standards those schools should, should need to meet in order to receive any kind of state funding or if they want to participate in these scholarship programs. I think that when we, thank you for the question, and your description of how you can take the public school, take it to open enrollment and be so successful was great. And I think that's a great opening for our panel today. When I get specifically to your question, depends on a saying that the future of Texas depends on a strong, well-educated workforce. And while our public schools have achieved great success in graduation rates, there's only about half, 50%, that actually go on to college or a technical school or a trade school. And I don't think that's good enough. I think we can do better. But that's not just how I feel about it. Business leaders and associations agree, as a matter of fact, even the Austin Chamber of Commerce, says they've set a goal that's saying that graduates of our high schools, we need to have at least a 70% of our students to go on to either college or a technical school or some type of trade school. And that's important. I mean, why is the business community calling for that? Because, yes, we are a competitive state. We bring businesses here. But they're asking, where is our workforce for the future? So let's step back a second and say, other states that compete with Texas have educational options. More children are going to college, technical schools, or trade schools. But those options are out there. Texas limits the options they have we limit quality educational options. That means we're limiting the possibility for a strong, well-educated workforce post-high school. And when you think about it, who are the best to decide what the educational needs are of their children? The parents. So that brings us back then to school choice. But what are we doing with school choice? We could say, Sure, everybody go to the school that you want. And if you have enough money and you're mobile enough, you have school choice. But what about somebody who doesn't have the financial means? I can send my child to the school of my choice, but my neighbor may not be able to. Somebody may make a lot of money, but we don't know what their financial needs are in their household. So those who don't have the financial means to be able to send their child to the school of their choice, what a grant or scholarship to that child, to that parent, to that family means, they have some assistance to have the school of their choice, education of their choice for the child. And that's, that's what it is. We tie the hands in our education system, we tie the hands of our superintendents, our schools, our parents. So we've tied the financial hands 
of parents if they don't have the money. So this is just an assistance. You know, as, and I've got some of my Senate colleagues here, my friends, Senator Rodriguez, Senator Garcia, so welcome today. And we all want the same things. We want great education for our children. Well, uh, Senator, I might just interject and ask, you know, say we do um, provide this kind of financial assistance to parents um, and it involves some kind of um, use of, of public money, either through you know, public money not going into the coffers that would via a tax credit or a straight up 60% you know, of per student funding. Yes. How should we select the private schools that we are going to allow to participate in that kind of program? I personally believe that we as a government, we as a government bureaucracy, should not make that choice. The parents are the best one to make the choice for their child. The grant provides um, an opportunity, may not pay for all of it, but there's a difference in a family trying to pay the tuition, a year tuition at a private school, versus maybe having to just make up an extra $100 a month or so. But who decides the school and the conditions? I I think the parents are the best one to provide an accountability for the school, and I believe we need to leave the choice to the parents. Well, Ms. Dipple, you, um, your organization works with parent, thousands of parents mm -hmm. um, who are trying to navigate <coughs> the various options, not just charter schools, but uh, you know, what are the various options in their school district? Um, you know, is there a private school that might suit their needs? Yep. Um, what is your perspective on kind of the current state of affairs um, in Texas when it comes to school choice and accountability and, and what needs to change? Yep. So um, first, thank you for having me. It's really an honor to be with the other speakers. Um, and I also just want to say that um, I think what Dr. Hull is doing is a great role model for, um, for so many other districts. Um, so what I would say is, first, I would love to just kind of uh, qualify that we work uh, with thousands of families in Houston who opt into our services. Families Empowered is a free service organization. We provide support to parents who are on high-performing charter school wait lists. These are people, we don't gin them up, we don't, and they, uh, we don't tell them what to do. They're applying to charter school wait lists, and they, at charter schools, they get waitlisted and they opt into our services. And what we do is we partner with other charters, CMOs and mom and pops and small charters, public schools. We actively um, partner with HISD, with SAISD, with ALEAF, with Aldine. Um, and we're very proud to partner with private schools as well. So the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston, and San Antonio, as well as other um, secular private schools. Um, and so, you know, I. My perspective is really coming from the grassroots, is really coming from the parent, the, the folks who have to live with the decisions that generally get made every other year here. Um, and so when, you know, I, I'm, in, I, I'm sort of hearing Dr. Hull talk about the way in which she views um, her district, it, it's really, um, it's exciting for me because what we know is that parents do want choice. Mm -hmm. Um, we, any, I'd love to just see another show of hands, how many folks in this room are parents? Now, how many of you, keep your hands up. Um, keep your hands um, up if you love your kids. 
what I'm a parent too. Sorry. I should put my hands down. Win. I love my I'm missing a baseball game to be with you all over a 10-year-old baseball game. So what I would say is, um, you know, over 65% of the parents we serve are low-income parents. So that's the other thing. We're in San Antonio and Houston, and we have a very urban perspective. Every one of the parents we serve loves their kids as much as this, you all, you beautiful people here today. Um, and so there's no, no shortage of love, will, and determination to find the best for the kids. And so, you know, like Senator Campbell, we believe that parents, if given, you know, good information, and we say that we provide actionable, accurate information to parents so that they can be empowered to make choices. And we really focus our, our efforts on low-income parents because we also believe that upper-income and middle-income parents generally have choice. Um, when you buy a home, a realtor will say to you, oh, this house is just zoned to this school. So, and, and if you've applied to college, you've experienced choice and you know that there are certain rules of the game. And a lot of low-income parents, immigrant parents, Folks who are new to the United States just don't know the rules of engagement. Um, and so we, we hope to fill in the gap. Um, and so we do that by being model agnostic, right? We, we feel like we want to give low-income parents all the same options that middle and upper-income parents have. And so that means we don't take anything off the table because that would be very paternalistic of us. And we think we parents know best. And, and so what I will say is um, we find, generally speaking, parents are gravitating toward high-performing public magnet schools and high-performing charter schools. Um, in both cities we operate in, when surveyed, 65% of our parents said they would take advantage of a scholarship if it was provided for them. Um, so we do know that parents want choice. Um, I think the, the real question is um, how are we going to provide those choices for them? We have a lot of confidence that, you know, right now, if we, we don't have enough high quality supply to meet demand, that's an opportunity. I don't see that as a problem, um, but we are quibbling over lots of things that feel very significant to folks here, but are affecting the lives of real people mm -hmm. um, and their kids. So what I would say is that we need more choice in all forms of it. So what you're doing is phenomenal. I'd love to see more superintendents empowered uh, by their boards or others um, to, do, to provide open enrollment um, districts and to do partnerships with, with um, charters like we're seeing in Spring Branch. Um, I, we'd argue we need more choice. And the accountability, we tend to agree with um, Senator Campbell that when parents are provided with choice, um, the accountability comes when they, um, when they make that choice, and they will choose with their feet. And I'm not an expert on school evaluation, so I'm just going to also say that. <laughs> I think we've got other folks who can have that, um, that discussion. Well, I wanted to bring Mr. Ratliff into the conversation. I know that um, I understand that you've done some data crunching for us, and um, so I'd like to hear about that. But... I also know in your work at, on the state board, you deal with kind of the front end of the charter application process. So you see that kind of firsthand. Um, and then you also work closely with the Texas Education Agency. So you can kind of see you know, what the state is doing um, on, with the accountability system. So could you just talk a little, I mean, we have a lot of ideas up here on stage, but 
I guess there are reasons why the state hasn't gotten to the point of being able to, um, to enact them yet. Well, <clears throat> and thank you for having me. I'm sorry for the mold and the forest fires are making me sound more like James Earl Jones than my normal self. <clears throat> um, you're talking to a small town guy. I live in a town of 15,000 people, and my daughter, who's now graduated, and my son, we go to an adjacent school district. We have made the choice to seek out a different option than where we are geographically located. Choice is great. The key thing about our choice is it was a level playing field. And both options have to abide by the same rules, take the same kids, play by the same rule book. And if you've seen the rule book for public schools, you know it's about 1,900 pages. What I can't, <clears throat> what I struggle with is, uh, and I think uh, Ms. Hull, uh, not Ms. Hull, the, just drew a blank. The, the parents in Houston, they want accurate and actionable information. And that's what I've tried to bring today. And if you follow me on Twitter, I have tweeted out a link to my Dropbox. Uh, the Dropbox is back. And uh, it is, uh, the pat, the, it's a read-only format. If you see something you want more, email me and I'll send you the full Excel spreadsheet. Um, but we've got to have an open and honest discussion and a factual discussion about what the playing field looks like today. Because what we want to call competition, it looks more like the state of Texas picking winners and losers, either financially or from a rule book perspective. And, and if that's the policy decision they want to make, that's, and you know, the state board is on the receiving end of that. We don't get to make those decisions. Um, and let me just use one example. It is accurate to say that a charter school in Texas gets $1,000 less per kid than the average ISD, the key word being average. When you look at it in the real world, if, a student, if an economically disadvantaged student who is in Houston ISD today leaves and goes to a charter school tomorrow, it costs the taxpayers of Texas $1,067 more to go to that charter school than it does to go to the ISD. Because every charter school in Texas gets the average of the small, mid-sized school adjustment. And so while the charter schools are advocating for facilities funding, they're doing so with the basis that, they, that you believe that they already get $1,000 less per kid, which is not accurate. And I would also tell you, I, I wonder about the policy decision to say, you have to comply with fewer rules and regulations, but we're going to give you the same money to do it. That's not a level playing field. So if we want to talk about competition, I'm all for <clears> it. <throat> but let's just make sure that we don't have one group working with their arm tied behind their back, and the other group, we're going to slide a $7,000 check under the door and just tell them, do your best, we trust you. I just don't think that's a fair competitive model. Well, let's uh, talk about that a little bit more because you've brought up that um, you have uh, the set of accountability requirements for, um, for public schools and charter schools, but then they both have to follow the same accountability standards. Then, but then charter schools have um, the ideas that they're kind of these laboratories of innovation, so they're freed up from some of the regulations that, that public schools have. And now we're, we're potentially bringing in um, private schools who, you know, under um, you know what Senator Campbell has described, you know, might not be subject to any of the regulation. Because I mean, I believe that could include unaccredited, you know, possibly unaccredited private schools. Um, how is I? I just like to maybe get you know everyone on the panel to respond. Just you know, how should the state approach that? And I mean, and is that fair, um, or is that just a part of having? you know, multiple options for parents to, to choose from, and maybe Senator Campbell, if you wanted to start. Sure. Thank you. Well, I'm not sure 
how we're necessarily picking winners and losers. When you look at an individual child, the parent is concerned about the win for that child. And what we're doing is trying to untie the hands of the parents so they can make the choice. I'm, I'm sure that we do not mean that we want to save money or not save money, but not, but put issues of money specifically over the educational benefit of the child because when we, the child gets, for instance, a grant to go to a private school, the, there, it is less. It is not the full cost of the per-pupil spending that we do right now. So there is a savings there. And I'm not, so, and when we talk about picking winners and losers, and I'll get specifically back to your question, but when we talk about picking winners and losers, that's what we've done so far. We have a mandate on where children must go to school unless the haves, I mean the haves, can take their child where they want to go. The have-nots cannot. That's not a level playing field. And don't we really want an equal opportunity for all the children that we can? That's what we want. So your question specifically was... I guess, you know, maybe a better way to phrase it is um, if, if the idea is that, you know, parents can vote with their, their feet and that's kind of the best, yeah, they can move their kids to a different school um, and kind of that's the most powerful form of accountability is, is this, I mean, does that mean that maybe we should be looking at, uh, you know, lifting the kind of accountability, state accountability requirements okay. and regulations, you know, across the board, that just every parent should be able to vote with their feet and, um, yes. you know, including in, in public schools, including uh, traditional public schools, including in charter schools? I think I, and I will let the others chime in too, but when we are looking at accountability, that's probably where a lot of this comes down to. Consumer accountability is truly the best accountability. Again, who are we to decide what's best for another child? And parents can choose with their feet. And for charter schools, they must meet the same standards. It's a public school, public charter schools. It's not the traditional schools, but it's, it is a public school. They get no facility funding and they do operate with $1,000 less per child. They can be closed easier than a traditional school. So when we're looking at accountability, we've done, we've done a lot to try to bring that in. Um, so when you also look at private schools, charter schools, uh, they are successful at postgraduate children going on to higher education trade schools or technical schools. That is something that we need, that we're looking for in our future workforce. Go ahead, Susan and Colleen. <laughs> I mean, so what yeah, I'd say is first, I think it's important to hear from superintendents, but, but I actually you know, sort of agree with you. I, um, Thomas, sorry, um, uh, that Look, I, th I think that we ought to level the playing field and give superintendents, I mean, they shouldn't have to live with a rule book that's this big and charters live with this. 
let's, I mean, we are over-regulating superintendents. We are telling them how to do their jobs and giving them unfunded mandates, and they ought to have autonomy to run their districts, like CEOs. I mean, these are massive enterprises, and they have huge fiduciary responsibility to provide taxpayers with a return on investment. So what I'd argue is superintendents, I mean, we are going to have a superintendent pipeline problem. I'm glad mm -hmm. to know that there are some folks who want to be superintendents in the room, so thank you. It's a job that's hard. We have a quality problem because it's not a job people want. It's over-regulated. So what I would say then, so, so I think you're right that we ought um, to level the playing field, but I'm not sure that ratcheting up you know, a regulation book for charters is, is the way to go there. I'm not sure that that's what you were suggesting, but I think let's give these guys, let's unshackle them and give them some freedom to do what they need to do. And I think we ought to equalize funding so that charters are not having to double dip with philanthropists and, you know, cobble together these crazy, I mean, we, in the city of Houston, we have underutilized buildings that are paid for by taxpayers in the same neighborhoods where we have thousands of kids on charter school wait lists. And those charter schools are buying hospitals and, you know, raising philanthropy to renovate them. And across the street, you got a building at 50% capacity the taxpayers are paying for. I mean, I don't know where there's accountability in that model. That's crazy. And it's happening all over the place. Um, and then what I would just also just finally say is we actually do believe, first of all, parents deserve information. So we think, you know, look, my kids are tested annually and I'm fine with that. I need to know where they are. We need to know that. We have a responsibility as a state to know our dollars are being spent well and that we are educating kids. Um, and I'm a fan of, you know, what former President Bush said around sort of the soft bigotry of low expectations. Like, we have to be measuring growth, and we need to be measuring what students know and are able to do, and I would say annually. We have to do that in a sane way that respects teachers. Um, and we ought to be giving parents good data to make decisions, but here's the dirty secret. They do not trust the state, period. They don't trust the districts, period. How do I know this, and why am I saying this with passion? We surveyed randomly 500 parents in San Antonio who are on charter school wait lists this summer. We asked them, where do you get your information about your schools? Two of them said from TEA. Two out of 500 said they've ever been to the TEA website. So I think it's great that you have data. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're a low-income parent, you're not going on blogs and Twitters and trolling around to find this kind of data. So we need to have easy, accessible, accurate information, but they're not going to the state. You know where they're going? Friends and family. That's the program they're on, right? The friends and family program. So I'm not sure how we regain trust, but when we ask parents um, if they even look at their current school scores, only 50% of those parents had done that. They're not even looking at the scores of the schools they're applying to. So we're spending a lot of time and money talking about testing and scoring and rating. We share children at risk, A through F, data with parents. It's easy to understand. It makes sense to some. It doesn't. But the te what y'all are doing here, it's, it's just parents are not using it. That's, and what I'm, the parents we work with. So that's who I will, that's what I will say. So we have to have some way for parents to make good decisions. And the best models I've seen are things 
like what we're seeing in, in Grand Prairie, where you have open enrollment, where you have superintendents who are not afraid of competition, where they're providing good information. And, and you know, at Families Empowered, we have fairs, we provide information, we have, we'll have a Catholic school, a charter school, and public schools in the same room with 2,000 parents. And it's their job mm -hmm. to get that information out. Well, yeah, Dr. Hull, you're operating in this world um, as a superintendent with the big rule book. Um, I'd like to just have you weigh in on some of the issues that have, that have come up today. And um, we're, when we talk about funding equity, uh, I know that many of you in this room know this. I know that I have a couple of colleagues, superintendents, school district colleagues in this room who know this well. I've been a superintendent for 25 years. And the first uh, lawsuit on school funding was filed three years before I became a superintendent. So um, I'm also a third generation Texas public school superintendent. So I don't, in all honesty, I'm in the kid business. I spend a lot of time trying to take that rule book and that funding mechanism and make it work well for us. And I spend very little time worrying or whining about what it is. The reality is that Grand Prairie ISD, which is more than 75% uh, students of poverty, 91% uh, minority district, with a 33% mobility rate and a 32% uh, second language learner percentage, um, we're funded at $1,014. And I'm talking about our overall funding because there are about five different categories of WADA, adjusted basic allotment, all those kinds of things. But overall, with all of the money we receive, and we do receive some, some uh, funding, uh, some facilities assistance and some quite a bit of federal funding, we're funded at $1,014 below charter schools. I have three in-district charters where we applied for a charter. One's a school for the highly gifted, one is a 6 through 12 collegiate institute, and one is a World Language Academy uh, with English, Spanish, and Vietnamese. And uh, those three charter schools are funded at the district level, not at the charter school level. So I could spend a lot of time whining about that, and I just choose not to uh, because we're in the kid business. And, and the vast majority, 99.9% .9 of superintendents in the state of Texas absolutely feel that way and, and operate that way. Um, and there are a lot of options out there in our public schools. We're certainly, certainly not the only school district providing choice. Um, 40, of our 42 campuses, 21 are schools of choice. And in addition to that, we have many other, other programs. And we do have a partnership with a charter school. I have a charter school inside of one of those buildings. Um, and, and, and that's a good relationship. But we don't hear about it because as school people trying to make our funding work and squeeze everything we can out of a dollar, sometimes we're a little hesitant to spend that money on marketing. Now, we've, we bit the bullet in Grand Prairie and we use that word. We say marketing. Uh, and the ROI on our marketing is more than 36%. More than 36% of what we spend comes back to us in returned uh, students. Uh, you introduced me as a superintendent of a school district with more than 26,000 students. That's true. We have This year we have 29,334. Uh, 
And uh, many of those students have come back to us from someplace else or have come to us uh, because of the things that we can offer, leadership academies, fine arts academies, a career high school with a 100% graduation rate uh, and 100% uh, into college or technical school or career or the military with no entrance criteria except for students coming from out of the district. And so those are the things that we look at and those are the measures we take. And, and uh, we operate looking at our data and Mr. Ratliff spoke of data. I've seen his data, he's seen mine, so we're personal friends on that level. Um, we're swapping the, data now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, we're very data. swapping. <laughs> so what we choose to do is we choose to live in a culture and have a culture in our school to beaten with a cane us to fail forward, to innovate and not be beaten with a cane. Um, I've been looking at Singapore schools in the last, <laughs> last few weeks. Not be beaten with a cane uh, for failing, but rather use that data as a flashlight, not as a whip, but as a way to look deeper into what we can do and what we can do together. So the first time that we had our big GPISD experience, our big shopping expo for parents, we didn't know what to expect. We, uh, we decided that if we had 500 people show up, no one would get fired over, over spending the money on it. And Dr. Hull, if you just want to finish your thought, okay. I'm going to let, uh, I just want to make sure we have time for questions and I'll let uh, Mr. Ratliff respond to anything he wanted I'll, to. I'll and then, stop. Oh, okay. Uh, Mr. Ratliff, if you wanted to kind of weigh in, and then if people want to start lining up at the at the mics, we can take questions after uh, that. The uh, the talk about the rule book that'll preach. I'll I'll, I'll go Fair on the road with you and talk about the answer isn't more regulation on the choices; it should be less regulation on the ISDs. And this is something near and dear to my family's heart. Twenty years ago, my father rewrote the entire education code and eliminated twenty five percent of it. And since that time, we've not only refilled that, but we've added even more on top of that. And I think the trouble starts in, in my general philosophy, and this, granted, this is a gross oversimplification, but what I've tried to do at the state board and what I think the legislature, uh, in my opinion, would do well to do is to focus on the state should be in the what business, not the how business. Here's what we want kids to know by the end of third grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, graduate from high school. Here's what we want teachers to be, how, what they should be qualified. Here's what we want a superintendent to look like. How you do it, we hire professionals to do their job. And, and in terms of accountability, any school choice program, I think, has got to look no different than how we pave roads in the state of Texas. If you're a contractor and you're gonna pave a road, you have a contract with the state, you have deliverables, you have measurables, you have specific obligations that you do. We don't buy office supplies at the state level without some terms and conditions of what that's going to look like. So why would we do anything less to educate the mind of a child? So if, if the government is procuring it with public dollars, there should be accountability that follows it, period. All right. And I would add, oh yes, please, I Senator. Would add, let's, you know, we can see what Dr. Hull has done in her position as a superintendent in public, the public school traditional arena and she's 
the success rate. And I applaud you on order to bring more children in and look at the success rate. And I applaud you on that. Thank you. I went up there and I visited the school and went to the mechanic shop and everything else. And it, it's brilliant. And that's a model. She has brought children back to the school. And that's parent accountability or parents measuring accountability at the school. Again, I would say when you're talking about building the regulations up from what you know, they'd been cleaned out before, unlike a road, and some of those roads are bad because of the contractor. But we'll vote for the Proposition 7 for our roads. <laughs> that was a nice softball segue for Prop 7. Good job. Good job. I'm going to stop you right but there I, just But so I will can, say If you that, can just, like... Sure. Yeah. But I will say that if we let the parents choose the education for their children. You know, they're at private school it's not 100% government subsidized. Let's let them let let parents be accountable. Schools be accountable and we come back and we tweak where there's failures so that we can all work together for success going forward. There you go. All right. First question. Hi, I'm Jim Rice. I'm a school board trustee from the Fort Bend Independent School District. I just have a couple of questions. One, when we're talking about school choice and open enrollment and letting children go to whatever campus they want to go, my question is who is going to provide the transportation and who is going to pay for it? That's one question. And the second question is should we use public funds to subsidize private schools? Thank you. I'm happy to take that on to start with that. Thank you for your question, sir. Transportation. Let's first get over the obstacle where a parent can't take their child to the school of their choice. I believe parents will find a way for transportation. But let's work with one barrier first, and that's let the parents have the choice, school choice. The second, is it right to subsidize private schools? Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, the focus, as she said, she's in the kid business, the focus needs to be, are we getting the return of investment on the dollars that we are putting in? And the budget, public ed, takes up about 37% of our budget. Those dollars are to be educating our children. It would be less expensive for those who want to choose have go outside the traditional public school but also, there's a good return of investment on our dollars. And is it right? Let me say, I think it's wrong if we are taking taxpayer dollars and not allowing the taxpayer to have a choice about the most important thing in their life, and that is what they're going to sow into their child. And Let's speaking of Fort Bend, yeah. just FYI, you get $881 less than charter schools that you compete with. <laughs> All right. Next question. But also, I mean, per student, see sorry. what, though, providing filled empty seats. I don't know if you have empty seats or not. But also providing options out there also helps address the problem of, some of the problem of overcrowding, fast-growing schools. We've got other seats out there that could be filled. 
I think if we work together, we can come up with a, an option with all options on the table. All right, next question. Well, I really want to commend the superintendent for open enrollment, and I do like the direction that I'm seeing with schools uh, opening up for more choice. Um, I feel like the federal education system that we have has made it really tough for public schools and for other people that want to start maybe an alternative type of learning school to be able to start a school if they so choose. I'm wondering how easy or hard is it to, if I, for instance, wanted to start a school tomorrow that was very alternative and something new and innovative, a way to teach children in a totally new different way. Um, how, how difficult is it for someone to just start a new school? And is there any hope in the future of Texas politics that there is gonna be more opportunity for new types of schools to emerge, new types of education, and also, um, is there anything right now happening uh, in the legislature that could possibly make it easier for us to use our own tax dollars and put that, th that tax money, whether it's in our property taxes, I think that's how it's paid for typically for the schools, where we could actually take that money and put it to the school of our choice and the money follows the student and not the other way around? That's a really big question. I'm going to take the part of it about being easy or hard and blend it with the uh, board member from uh, Fort Bend ISD. Uh, providing choice is hard. It's much more difficult than saying, you live here so your child goes here, bring me a water bill to prove where you live, that's where you go. It's, it's much easier to simply dictate where children should go to school based on an attendance zone. And it is labor intensive and it is time intensive to um, create a system that allows uh, a parent to make a first, second, and third choice and sort through those choices. And in, inside our district, remember, there's no criteria other than if a child has, has an attendance problem, we will consider that. We won't dump that on anybody else. But it's, it's very labor intensive. It's very time intensive. It must be very very intentional. We have to decide exactly what we're going to do, have a laser focus on that and not de-person Facebook mom. And we also have to be willing to find the people, we call this person Facebook mom. We have a whole bunch of Facebook moms that if somebody doesn't listen, if we don't listen, it goes on Facebook. And we seek out Facebook mom and we bring them in and say, okay, give it to us. We're ready, beat us up, tell us what we're doing wrong because our job is to educate that child to the very highest potential that that, that child can reach. Uh, so it's, it's gonna be tough to start a new school, but there is a way to do it. And it's on the TA website. Two of Colleen's parents can tell you how to access that. Well, I, I, I think that... Or, or I would say yeah. go to the Texas Charter School Association website if you wanna start a charter school, uh, it, but it is no small task. Well, I think the answer to the question about starting a school, I don't know where she went. Right there. Oh, there you are. Uh, it depends on what kind of school. You can start a home school and have it be a co-op. You can do that with no regulation. And we've got several of them in my hometown that friends of mm -hmm. mine, they have a doctor that teaches the science classes, a <coughs> piano teacher that teaches the mm -hmm. music. And so you can do that tomorrow. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want to do a charter school, you get a few more rules and regulations thrown at you. Private schools, I have no idea. Uh, public schools, you got to start a town. Uh, so it, it kind of goes from homeschool all the way up. Uh, 
but your point about the federal government making it hard for us to educate Texas kids, you are absolutely right. And, and it's bad enough that we shackle our superintendents with the state education code, much less the federal education code. And, and I've, I've frequently ask our commissioner at board meetings, is this another case of where we have to ask Arnie Duncan, mother may I? How do I educate Texas kids with you know, the United States Congress? And it's a little known fact that the federal government is prohibited from dictating public education. But what they do is they dangle some billions of dollars out in front of us and say, if you want this, you got to do this. And so we get addicted to the money. Right. We have the ability today to say, federal government, it's been great. It's not you, it's me. We're out of here for the challenge. Let's go to our but, but we got to find about a $3 billion right. hole to fill in. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, right. it comes with a challenge. Let's go to our last question. Hi, thank you so much for taking my question and for being here today. Um, I just moved to Texas from Arizona where I was a charter school teacher and um, one of the attractions for working at a charter school was knowing that my headmaster could fire a bad teacher. Right. And I'm wondering um, in Texas, what is your experience with um, teacher tenure? And I, I'm really, I have no idea what the details are. As I said, I just moved here, but I'm, I'm curious about that problem that I have seen in other public schools where you have these rubber rooms where these teachers who have, can't be fired are, are stuck in them. So I'm just wondering what your experience has been in Texas. From, from my experience as a, as a husband of a high school Spanish teacher and an activist dad, helicopter dad, if you will, uh, we have a high school principal that does not tolerate slackers. And so your first year, you have an initial probation period. If you do well, then that comes off. Uh, if your first year you do not cut, cut your weight, they put you on an improvement plan. If you do not meet the terms of that improvement plan the next year, you're out. Uh, we have no tenure, we have no unions, we have no uh, right to work. Uh, your right to work is the right to do your job well. And not all school districts are like that. Some, you know, if, if the teacher is the spouse of the head football coach, it gets a little more political to let that person go. If it's the superintendent's kid, it can get a little more political. But that's not unique to public schools. But I have, you know, you hear horror stories about it's impossible to fire a teacher. And I, I don't know if Dr. Hull is, has the... the uh, guillotine like our principal All my does, teachers but, are great. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so it, you, you hear those stories, but it really comes down to documentation, because if you fire somebody without documentation, you have problems on the back end. But it comes down to a superintendent or a principal willing to, to make that decision and live with it and, and implement it. That is one of the flexibilities that charter schools have in Texas, and, and many of you know, uh, we do have a, a statute chapter 21, so that teachers have term contracts. It's not a bad thing because that's also a contract that says they can't walk out the door in November and, and leave 150 freshman English students without a teacher. Um, but uh, certainly there's a, there's a method to help a, a low-performing teacher behave themselves into another profession. Uh, and so charter schools don't have those same regulations, though the charter schools that are my industry charters, we do offer Chapter 21 contracts. We don't want them to feel that they don't have the same benefit professionally that the, the other 1,800 teachers have. And I think I would oh, just yes. add, Senator. not specifically, you're all about providing general. I know in the Senate, we are all about providing avenues. We, we want to support, we've got a lot of great, great public schools. We have a lot of great teachers. 
the, what I feel is the disconnect there is parents need to just be able to, to make the option. When this is a public school, innovative, and children come back, then that says it all. So I think the disconnect where we have, be it, call it school choice, quality educational options for parents, just the parent needs to have the choice. I've got great schools in my district specifically where a parent, they move to the area in order to get their child there. So we've got some great schools. Let's just let the parents have some options. Well, I guess um, the senator is going to have the last word on this panel because we're out of time. Um, but thank you, everyone, for, for coming. It's great. I'm glad we filled up the room, even though Nancy Pelosi is speaking. So, yeah, thank you. Who wants to go see Nancy Pelosi anyway? Exactly.